Amen. Thank you so much. Good morning. So wonderful to be with you this morning as we've come together to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Those tuning in as well online, so wonderful to be with you. There's a oneness here in what we're attempting to experience today with Jesus Christ, who draws us together, one Savior, one Lord. I'd love to be able to have you now turn your Bibles, um, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, verse 11, and down through verse 20. And as you're turning there at the same time, what I want to be able to do is to draw your attention to one or two things that help us to better understand what it is that we're exploring together this morning. Paul has made his way now into the setting known as Ephesus. It's one of the major metropolises in the world at the time in which Paul ministered. What appears on the screen at this point is a map that allows us to be able to get from where Paul was to Ephesus itself. And so as you track with me on the map, what you will see here at this point is that his starting point for his third journey was in Antioch. Great church there, metropolitan church. It was cosmopolitan, people coming from various settings, various directions to be able to get there. And notice how he made his way westward through Tarsus, home turf, onward until he eventually made his way to Ephesus. Ephesus, great metropolitan area, it had two to three years worth of experience with the Apostle Paul in its setting. One of the three or four largest cities in the Roman Empire. About a quarter of a million people that were found there. The city's wealth was reflected everywhere. Take a good hard look at what follows. Here's a picture. It's a harbor. Because Ephesus was strategically located. As the Roman Empire stretched eastward, Ephesus' large and sheltered harbor, such that it became a, a major communication center. Sea traffic coming from the west, the north, and the east stopped at Ephesus. I remember our tour group had come in from Greece, uh, walked up onto the harbor landscape there, and were able to begin to take in all that Ephesus had to be able to offer us. Ephesus. Convenient, collection point, even produced agricultural products for people to be able to take back with them to the various settings they came from. But what was very significant in that time period was that Ephesus also hosted one of the most popular shrines in antiquity, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the fertility goddess by the name of Artemis, worshipped by the Romans by the name Diana. So pilgrims from all over the Mediterranean would flock to the temple of Artemis. And it was there that God had positioned the Apostle Paul to have an effective ministry and to offer a counter to what was being offered in terms of the false spirituality that was found in that region. So now, not only do you have a harbor that allows for people to be able to come in from other lands, but also at the same time, Ephesus had one of the best road systems, Roman road system. And Paul, who was also not only somebody who had been equipped with what we might call two doctorates, also was a tent maker, which allowed him to construct tents for Roman soldiers who were making their way up and down the Roman roads. And so whether it be land or by sea now, the gospel was going to go forth, and it was going to be going forth through the lips of Paul positioned in that setting for God's glory. 
which tells me once again that no matter where you work, and no matter what neighborhood you find yourself in, and no matter what extended family you are part of, God strategically positions you to be able to find creative ways, flexible methods for fluid times, to be able to offer a fixed message of hope that Jesus Christ died for people's sins and on the third day was raised from the grave. So with that in mind, there is now the background of what we're covering this morning. I want you to have found your way to Acts chapter 19. We're picking it up from verse 11, verse 20. We ended last week with this incredible statement in verse 10. This continued for two years, Paul's ministry in Ephesus. So that all the residents of Asia heard, and you mark this now, the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now we pick it up with verse 11 for today's study. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them. And the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I assure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts and brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. This last verse, draw a line from how we ended last week to how we end this week. Verse 10 last week, all Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, this week. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So what you have now done is bookended. You bookended the word of the Lord from the end of last week's study and this week's study. And what you have done in between is that you have drawn together the work of the Lord that is being revealed throughout the streets of Ephesus. It all fits together now as we pause and we look to our Lord together in prayer. And Father, we're thanking you for being our God. You're sovereign. Even in the midst of COVID-19, we see your sovereignty. Wherever there is an obstacle, there's an opportunity. Wherever there, there is opposition, there is opportunity. 
We saw how the Apostle Paul, when he experienced opposition and faced obstacles, left the synagogue in Ephesus, made his way to the secular hall of Tyrannus, and lectured for two years in theology. And we're told that all of Asia heard of the teachings. He demonstrated for us flexible methods in fluid times with a fixed message, focused on Christ. We want to do the same. So, Father, for those physically present in the various services, for those that are right now absorbing your word via live stream, for the YouTube presentations that will be checked out through the days, weeks to come. We want you to be honored and you to be glorified. So, Father, these are significant times, great opportunities to be able to consider what matters most, focus our attention, frankly, upon who matters most, Jesus Christ. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Bring these things to again now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've ever spent time in Washington, D.C., you and I have had opportunities then to be able to make our way into the National Archives. And there in the National Archives, you're going to have opportunity to look at the signatures offering the names of some of the most significant and most important moments in all of history and the names attached to them. There you're going to find George Washington's name, his signature. He wrote to the Continental Congress, humbly asking that he should resign as commander-in-chief so that he could return to his home in Virginia only then to be returned to become President of the United States. Furthermore, in the National Archives, if you and I venture a little further, we're going to find that there is this document. Harry Truman has offered us something where he passed around his dinner program for all to sign at the conclusion of um, what had taken place in a conference in 1945 pertaining to World War II. Among the names, people who signed, Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin. The archivist writes these words pertaining to the names and the signatures. Signatures can tell us a lot about their owners and the circumstances under which they were made. John Hancock, Declaration of Independence. He was defiant. Lincoln, decisive. Harriet Tubman, determined. Catherine Hepburn, fearless. Truman, confident. All evident in the way in which they signed their name. The one that really grips the attention because of the story that stands behind it was the Emancipation Proclamation. Some of us know the story where President Lincoln is approached by Secretary Seward for the president's signature. We need your name, sir. 
Lincoln takes the pen, dips it in the ink, moves his hand to the place for the signature, and he holds it for a moment, and then removes his hand and drops the pen. Hesitation. He again takes the pen and went through the same movement as before. He turns to Mr. Seward and he says, I have been shaking hands since 9 o'clock this morning. My right hand is almost paralyzed. If my name, if my name ever goes into history, it will be for this act. And my whole soul is in it. But if my hand trembles when I sign my name, everyone who examines the document hereafter will say, he hesitated. We're then told that Mr. Lincoln turned to the table, took up the pen, and slowly, firmly wrote his name, Abraham Lincoln, with which the whole world is now familiar. And then he looked up, smiled, and said, that'll do. It's as if what God is about to do in Ephesus chapter 19, 11 through 20, when all is said and done, is to say, hmm, that'll do. For you see, not once, but twice, do we find reference to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ found here in these verses. So what I want to do with you this morning is to explore together how that name is used. And as we do so, in this exposition, we're going to draw out three perspectives pertaining to the name of Jesus Christ that we see here and hopefully allows us to be better equipped to be able to minister effectively for God's glory. And the first comes out now of verse 11 and verse 12, that as the name of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, it appears on the screen, note first of all, the evidences of God's power that's unfolding here in these very verses. I'll read 11 and 12, and then we'll begin to develop this together. In verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And say, hey, Gary, that's not my experience when I go to work each day. Well, let's begin to think this through, work this out, and try to understand what's happening here. Because it begins with the phrase, and God was doing extraordinary miracles. Why? Bear in mind that this is a transitional period of time. This is not the third missionary journey. Bear in mind the setting we find ourselves in. This is a large metropolis among the most significant in the Roman Empire. Both land and sea are impacted by Ephesus. This is the place where one of the seven wonders of the ancient world is found. So ships are coming in north, south, furthermore from the west. Likewise, there's the trade system, the routes, the routes, however you put it, whereby people are coming back and forth with their agricultural goods. There's the Roman soldiers that have come back and forth across what was then known as Asia, now known as modern-day Turkey. This is the hot spot. And God has chosen the hot spot now to begin to proclaim his name. So now, the Apostle Paul finds that God is about to do not merely miracles, 
but extraordinary miracles. But how on earth do we even describe a miracle as merely a miracle? The Greek word for miracle is dunamis, from which we get a word, of course, dynamite. There is a dynamic situation unfolding in Ephesus at the time in which the Apostle Paul arrives. But it's not merely dynamic. It's extraordinarily dynamic. Extraordinary miracles are being produced. Why? Because the work of God is attesting to the word of God, as articulated by the Apostle Paul. All of this is being done by the apostles' hands, you see. Now, Paul would later write to the Corinthians. In the second of his epistles, in chapter 12, verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders, mighty works. God is credentialing Paul's words at this point because Paul is going to have to provide a counterpoint to the false spirituality of Artemis, the goddess that is being worshipped in that setting whereby people are making pilgrimages across the Aegean Sea and people are making their way along the routes of the Roman road system to get there. The crowds have congregated together and Paul is now offering an antithesis to what is being taught out on the streets of Ephesus. But he is now being, he's being accredited according to God's plan, God's works, giving evidence to God's word, albeit through the teachings of the Apostle Paul. You're up to verse 12. You raise your eyebrows. Even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. How does this work out? Now, the handkerchiefs being described here are the rags that were tied around his head. Catch the sweat as he was working hard with his hands on his leather trade to provide the necessary tents for the Roman soldiers coming back and forth across the Roman system who would be then sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ as they make their way back. The apron. Apron would be tied around his waist. It's what he was using as he was plying his trade. And so now he's fully engaged, you see, through wood, through the works of his hands, to be able to offer people something of high significance regarding what they really and truly need in life. And then you and I are told these words. Fascinating. The handkerchiefs or aprons, in other words, the rags around the head, apron, had touched his skin and were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them. Evil spirits came out of them. You say, Gar, is there any parallel to this in the scriptures? Well, do you remember the time in which Jesus Christ was ministering? He was ministering effectively for, for the glory of his Father. And what we find here is that in Luke chapter 8, for example, in verses 43 and 44, there is this woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And although she had spent all her living on her physicians, she could not be healed by anyone, Luke the physician tells us. But in verse 44, 
She came upon Christ, came up behind him, touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus supposed the question, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing on. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I perceive that power has gone out from me. He's able to give power without losing power. Now, the Apostle Paul has been credentialed by the sovereign God to be able to have high impact for God's glory throughout this region, this harbor setting. When Robert Morrison, the first missionary to China, got off his ship, Chinese port. Captain looked at him, sneered, and said, so you think you're going to make an impression upon China? The biographer records the classic response. No, sir, Morrison replied, but God will. Now, God is making an impression here. All these pilgrims have come across the waters and across the land to arrive in Ephesus in order to worship Artemis. And here the Apostle Paul now is having such highly powerful impact upon the culture that you and I are told by the physician Luke at this point that the handkerchiefs or the aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So at this point then, what you and I are told here is that the physician's even distinguishing the way in which this operates. There's the sick on one hand with their diseases. There's the evil spirits on the other hand. He doesn't combine the two and make them synonymous, but rather separate from. What's the evil one going to do? The evil one is being exposed at this point. Paul's at work. But even more so, God is at work. Summing up his troubles as Secretary of State, Dean Rusk one time told the House Foreign Affairs Committee with a sigh, the world is round. Only one-third of the people of the world are asleep at any given moment. The other two-thirds are awake and probably stirring up mischief somewhere, unquote. And you are about to see the mischief to be stirred up but remind yourself of this point now, that at the name of Jesus, as it's being proclaimed, you note the evidences of God's power that are on full display here. And where was this happening? And check out the picture that appears on the screen. You and I walk through this region. We are pondering the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. We are going from point A to point B to point C. And we take a deep breath because now we're in the Agora. It's the marketplace. If we were in the Middle East, it would be the souk. Other places in the world, it's known as the bazaar. But it is in America simply where the malls are found. People are gathered together. It's the place where conversations are unfolding. People want to know what's happening, what's new. And now what they're telling one another is that there is this man who's appeared, a rabbi, who furthermore is a tent maker, 
People are coming from boats and people are coming across roads. They're arriving on the scene to worship Artemis. And lo and behold, here's this man who is talking about one who three days later was raised from the grave. This is the setting where such good news was being proclaimed. Find your agora. And for those online afterwards, perhaps you want to start communicating with someone else and then someone else and someone else. This is your agora. Gives you opportunity then to be able to communicate the good news and get people to rethink their assumptions about what it is and who it is that they value most in life. Paul has found his way. He's got a strategic setting. So there's your first perspective. As the name of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, note the evidences of God's power and find a way in your own personal connectedness with people. Draw people's attention to the ultimate evidence of power where three days later Jesus Christ was raised from the grave onward. Dean Russ said that there was a lot of people causing mischief. Well, there's a lot of people here now causing mischief, and it's going to lead us then to this second perspective, that at the name as the name of Jesus is proclaimed, note not only the evidences of God's power in 11 and 12, but the subtleties of God's opponents in verses 13 down to verse 16. Read on. You're up to verse 13. And some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. Stop right there. Camp on it. Notice, first of all, they are itinerant. Either took the road system or else came in through the ships. Second of all, notice they're Jewish. In other words, what the evil one is about to do at this point is he's going to take people who have not been around long enough to be able to give a sense whether they are credible or not. Furthermore, they're Jewish, which means then the average individual will look at that person and say, Jewish, therefore, if he talks about Jesus, people have been talking about Jesus lately among these Jews, therefore, it must be credible. See what the evil, person, evil one's about to do? He takes someone who's itinerant, number one, Jewish, number two, exorcist, number three. As I say in my Greek New Testament, this is the only occasion where the word exorcist is used. Fascinating. Of all places now, in the intense spirituality of this metropolis known as Ephesus, where Artemis, the goddess of the Roman, or Diana, was worshipped. It's the itinerant Jewish exorcists who undertake to invoke, mark this now, the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, even the demonic realm knows his name. When Jesus and his disciples crossed the Sea of Galilee, the demonized man on the other side was already able to make mention of Jesus. The evil realm knows the name, and the evil realm can even use religious type individuals to speak of the name. But what I want us to understand at this point is that in these itinerant Jewish exorcists are five minutes off the hour. Notice that the evil one, as we've said on occasion, 
He doesn't operate on the basis of five hours off, but rather five minutes off. Why? Five hours off is obvious. But when you're five minutes off the hour, it keeps you from getting to where you need to on time. He gets close enough to the truth to make it look like the truth. He takes itinerant Jewish exorcists who are going to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying through them, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Ponder that. What's wrong with that? Think about it. Notice that they don't say anything about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Furthermore, they don't make this personal, my Savior. No. Instead, they just simply refer to Jesus as the one whom Paul proclaims. What are they doing? They have come up with a formula to be able to keep their exorcism business alive and well. Religion was profitable in that setting. And these individuals now realize high spirituality, here's a way through exorcism to be able to maintain and sustain our living. And so they have made inroads in, and they look close enough to the truth to make it sound as though that they, in fact, are, are communicating the truth. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Furthermore, they are fixing themselves to Paul's ministry. Watch out. The evil realm loves to be able to affix itself to a dynamic, high-powered ministry associating itself with and then allowing for problems to emerge. August 31st, 1939, Polish soldiers and guerrillas stir up an incident along the Polish-German border, attacking a forestry station, destroying German customs building, Occupying the German radio station. The Poles shouted anti-German slogans into the microphone. Littered the place with dead bodies of their German victims. You say, well, no wonder Nazi Germany invaded Poland the next day. But then, as Paul Harvey would put it, the rest of the story. For you see, German SD, the security service detachments were disguised as Polish soldiers. They were the ones creating all the mayhem. And the German corpses that were strewn around, they were the Jewish bodies taken from concentration camps in Germany. Heydrich had concocted the scheme to provide justification for Hitler's long-planned attack on Poland. There was no truth in it. It was all deception. But man, did it look like it was real. Now, what the evil realm does, it attaches itself to something so dynamic, so committed to truth. Here, then, 
the evil realm is using Jewish exorcists, itinerant, therefore haven't been around long enough to have their credentials checked. But listen to their wording. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, not who we proclaim. What we've got to be able to do is to listen carefully, discern accurately, distinguish wisely, and realize that oftentimes falsehood gives all the appearance of truthfulness. And we need to be able to go further than the surface. You're up to verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Pause. Gives you all the more reason then to be able to think this is obviously something being credentialed by God. But you're going to have to go still a little further. Because now, in verse 16, you and I are told the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all, all of them, overpowered them. They fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now that will get the attention of the people out on the streets in the Agora. But why? Didn't say it didn't have a good thing going here? Why not just keep using these itinerant Jewish exorcists? Camouflage. Why mess up what appeared to be a good thing for the evil realm? But you see, the evil realm deceives itself. Take, for example, Judas when it comes to Jesus. The evil realm wanted Jesus put to death. So did God the Father. Satan entered into Judas. Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus is taken to the point where he is crucified. And three days later, God the Father raises Jesus from the grave. The evil realm wanted Jesus dead. God the Father's plan all along is for Jesus to die and then three days later raise him from the dead. And what happens at this point is that the evil realm is so deceived, not only does it deceive others, it deceives itself. While attempting to attach itself to real, authentic Christianity. And so now you've got the evil realm using these itinerant Exorcists and the seven sons of Sceva, that's a Latin name, so pull out your Latin dictionaries. On the other hand, here's the demonized man who overtakes the exorcist. It's as if evil is turning on evil. And the whole thing collapses because God is sovereign and evil is not. Back to Berlin, 1945. It's near its last gasp. One evening, there's this general who is the assistant chief of staff to Hitler. He's driving toward Berlin. He's going to attend the Führer's night conference. And he's all excited because he notices that there's this flight of planes, Nazi planes, above him heading south. 
At the night briefing, he heard of an officer telling Hitler about a successful air attack upon Soviet tanks. The remark was off the mark. Wide off the mark. Because the Soviet tanks had actually been the buses and trucks of Nazi army convoy heading south. The Nazis had blown up their own kind. And it happens repeatedly. And this is the nature of evil. Self-defeating. Tried to get Jesus put on a cross. And God the Father had that plan all along and then three days later raises him from the dead. Do you see the brilliance that the physician Luke now is offering you and me, while at the same time giving us the capacity and the discernment to recognize that what evil does is it tries to attach itself to what is true, just the way the evil realm tried to attach itself to the Apostle Paul, offering a formula about Jesus' name, but lacking the reality and the power of knowing Jesus personally. The evidences of God's power, verses 11 and 12. The subtleties of God's opponents, verses 13 and down to verse 16. But now thirdly, I want to draw for the impact of God's word, beginning in verse 17. And this became known. Of course it's going to become known out there on the Agora. To all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. In other words, God sovereignly overtook the evil realm so that the evil realm now has now been not only decimated but further opportunities for the gospel to go forth. Harbor, ships, Roman roads, soldiers, by land, by sea. The talk of the Yogora. It's known to all the residents of Ephesus, Jews and Greeks. Fear fell upon them all Mark this. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Draw a line back, if you will, to verse 13, where the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. They were attempting to use the name of Jesus for personal gain. But here you and I find, in verse 17, Paul is proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus for sovereign grace. The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, not used. Verse 18. Many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. Greek word praxis. It was their practice to be involved in, in, in the teachings of false spirituality. So in verse 19, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together. These were known in antiquity in Roman time as the Ephesian letters. They brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all, and counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Silver, Greek word drachma. One day's wage, which means this was 50,000 days' wages. In other words, what they were saying is we are going out on a limb, putting our faith and trust in Jesus 
rather than Artemis, and everything that we had thus far put our faith and trust in. And you say, man, I'd love to be able to sight where that was happening. Well, look at what appears on the screen now. First of all, Mary's house. Mary's house. When you and I make our way on our journey, following the footsteps of the apostle Paul, we stop along the way, the onset, and we take a look at Mary's house. And you say, well, how on earth did Mary get there? The cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus looked down upon the apostle John and said, behold your mother. From that point on, John would care for Mary, and John eventually made his way to Ephesus, ministered there until he was having such high impact that the emperor had him banned to the Isle of Patmos. So it's thought that that is there where Mary lived. Artur walked through that setting, and a good tour guide steeped in, in the scriptures would hold up the scriptures, probably in the Greek language, and read Luke 1, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The name Jesus, which means literally God is our salvation. So the Jewish exorcists in verse 13 want to simply put Jesus into their formula to be able to keep their business going and refer to him as Jesus whom Paul proclaims. But here Paul, using the harbor system where the ships can take all this great knowledge of Jesus Christ back to all the various lands, and the Roman soldiers and those plying their trade, going up and down the Roman road system, bought a tent perhaps from Paul. Well, verse 17, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The result is many are now putting faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Those that are residents of the land are practicing, who have been practicing magic arts, they're, they're bringing their books together, burning them in the sight of all, counted the value of them, found out it would be about 50,000 pieces of silver, 50,000, you see, days of labor. Fast forward. Take a look with me at the Celsus lab, Library, if you will, if that would appear on the screen. We turn a corner in Ephesus. We're walking these roads. They're incredible. Marble roads, ruins to the right, ruins to the left. You're taking it all in. And then you turn a corner, and there you stand before what is known as the Library of Celsus. Ephesus was known as one of the great intellectual centers of the world, along with Alexandria in Egypt and Athens in Greece. People valued reading. People valued books. And people valued, in particular in Ephesus, everything that pertained to Artemis and the false spirituality that was being taught in those books. God is sovereign. 50,000 days worth of wages go up in flames in this 
the setting at the hands of the people that have been making profit off those books year after year. So then, what about God's word? If their word is destroyed, what about God's word? Link verse 19, where their words are destroyed, with God's word of verse 20. Back to the text. Read verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase. False spirituality, the word was destroyed. True Christianity, the word continues to increase, prevail mightily. Now draw a line from where we ended last week. In verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And now as we end this week, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And that's why we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, because God's word is sovereign. God's word prevails. And then you smile. Because there you have it. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 13. He is clothed in a robe and dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called. The word of God. Let's stand together. So, Father, we see now how all this fits together and how you took this brilliant medical specialist by the name of Luke, equipped him to be able to decipher what was happening in that setting medically, to be able to distinguish the diseases from the demonized, to be able to understand and help us to understand the need to develop discernment because the evil realm attempts to attach itself to where truth is proclaimed. May we be wise. May we be discerning. May we be committed to truth. And we praise you that Jesus Christ reigns. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.